welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Normally, it would just be Allie and I hanging out, having a couple cocktails, and talking about women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Kate Quinn. Welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Lovely to be here, and thank you, ladies, for having me. Oh, we're so excited. Kate is a New York Times bestselling author for her book, The Rose Code, and she is here to talk with us today about her newest book, The Diamond Eye. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I have been writing historical fiction since I was literally a tyke, and I really never stopped, and I finally figured out a way to make it into my day job. So I don't know if I managed to basically pull a fantastic con on the world or that I just got really, really lucky that I get to do this amazing thing for a living, but I'm always grateful. Great. Well, we're so excited to talk about it. We love historical fiction on this show, so (laughs) this book sounds amazing, but first we have to get into this cocktail. Allie, what are we drinking this evening? So I, obviously the cocktail's named the Diamond Eye, and it's very, very lovely, but (laughs) I wanted it to be something that had multiple things in it. A little bit of the librarian, a little bit of the sniper vibe, (laughs) all the things. So it's kind of like a cherry Coke and rum, but fancier. So Mm -hmm. it's Coca-Cola. You can use diet if you want. (laughs) Light rum, um, cherry juice, and then a sage leaf. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit of everything. A woman contains multitudes when it's a woman like Mila Pavlichenko, so her drink would absolutely need to contain multitudes as well. Yes, Yes, exactly. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers to you. Cheers. I don't have one. I wish I did. (laughs) It is tasty. (laughs) All right. So let's get started by setting the scene for your book. Obviously, one of the most amazing things about historical fiction is that we're it's set in real times with real places and real events so this book is based on the true story in a city of Kiev during Hitler's invasion during World War II can you tell us a little bit about what that area of the world's like at that time well, at this point in uh, history, you know, uh, as opposed to the way it is now, and as we are watching this play out in the news, um, Ukraine is very much under the Soviet Union umbrella. And, you know, not very happily, they're, uh, they have, the Ukrainian people have definitely suffered under Stalin. But at the same time, they are, you, they are part of the Soviet Union. And the fight against Hitler was a pretty stark one in the sense of, It wasn't so much a fight between, well, do we fight to repel Hitler, but we can't fight for Stalin. It was more like we have to fight to push Hitler back or else fascism is going to take over our country. And the fact is, this was this invasion was not a small thing. It was not, you know, well, our borders are being nibbled at around the edges and it might, you know, make a few headlines and or if you're right on the border it might be a problem no this was a massive full-scale nazi invasion that was pouring over the borders driving toward the major cities and it was you know really a you know tremendous shock to the average civilian and for someone like mila who was you know quite an unassuming civilian she did not want to be a soldier she did not want to be a sniper she was a very ordinary woman you know a single mom a graduate student a library researcher at the odessa public library she had grown up in the Kiev area and all she wanted to do was be a historian and you know make a better life for her son and for herself but Hitler's invasion threw her world into a completely different path and her whole life and 
to her, it really was as simple as if I do not join this fight, then if, if I don't do my part, then my son will grow up in a world where he's being churned into the Hitler youth and taught how to say sick Kyle. And I cannot accept that. So that was really as simple as it could be for her that she wanted to join the fight to push back the invasion. And honestly, I think, you know, I have no doubt that if she were born today, that she would be doing the exact same thing. She would still be defending her homeland. It would just be against Russians instead of Germans. Uh, But because all of her fighting, although it was done for the Red Army, it was done on Ukrainian soil in defense of Ukrainian civilians. And if there's anything I've loved, it is seeing how Ukraine has really embraced her as a national heroine of their own and, mm-hmm. you know, claimed her, you know, for belonging to them. And to my mind, she very much does. Yeah. Now, I want to know, how did they find this talent of hers for shooting? Because obviously she's kind of this mild mannered mom librarian and did she pick snipering? Did it find her? How did she find herself in this incredible position of, you know, being a hero who like kills like hundreds of people? Yeah, it's a little bit of a switch, isn't it? You, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about it that was interesting was, and the thing that put her ahead of so many people was that she arrived at the front already knowing how to shoot and how to shoot very well indeed. And that really was because, um, she, as a young woman, you know, did the occasional outing with friends at a shooting club, you know, like, you know, basically like, hey, let's go to the range. We'll shoot a few things. We'll shoot a few rounds, you know, have some fun after work. So she did that periodically, you know, as a very young woman. And then at some point, something motivated her to take an advanced course where she learned, would have learned about things like ballistics and, you know, you know, like when you have to account for wind and lateral drift on your bullets. There's a lot of science behind, you know, expert marksmanship. And so she decided, you know, and I really do wonder, you know, she was a young mom. She had night school. She had a job. She decided to also add onto her plate that she would take an advanced course. Now, she doesn't say why uh, in her memoir she did this. Um, My conjecture is that, you know, she was a single mother. She had a young son. And I wonder if maybe she thought that it was her job to be both his father and his mother Mm. Um, because her husband was very much not interested in being a father. He deserted both her and the baby within weeks, just a few or a few scant months into the marriage after their child was born. And he was never present in their lives afterward. He just completely ghosted. And so she was very much a single mother. And I wonder, and this is my conjecture that she may have thought she had the responsibility to teach her son to be a man in the way that a father would as well as a mother. So maybe she thought, you know, I'm going to acquire some, you know, skills that a man would be more likely to teach his son so that my son, you know, when he grows up and he wants to know like, hey, do I know how to shoot? Do I know how to do the manly things? You know, that I know how to teach him to do these things. That's my conjecture. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I guess. But that meant that she was already an excellent shot. And then she arrived at the front. So pretty much as soon as she got a rifle in her hands, because she had all these certificates, you know, like this is my expert marksmanship certificate. This is my other certificate, you know, that proves that I am good at this. Uh, Her officers were initially inclined just to brush that away. It's like, are you sure you don't want to be a nurse? But (laughs) she said, no, you can use me and my skills in a different way, believe me. And as soon as she got a rifle, they asked her to prove it and she proved it. And Mm -hmm. they said, okay, we can use that. (laughs) And they did. So 
that's the difference for her. She did not arrive at the front as this terrified naif, you know, this wide-eyed civilian who knew nothing about war. She didn't know anything about war, but she did know how to shoot already. And that really did help her to jump in feet first and get used to this absolutely terrifying world that was the, uh, the World War II Eastern Front. Yeah, so it sounds like she had this pretty um, seamless transition between like her life as a mom librarian and her life kind of fighting. But was the transition just as seamless when she's like now on a goodwill tour as like a war hero? I'm sure that's kind of like a one, two, three. That's a hard thing to do to all of a sudden be like touring around the United States like yay me. <laughs> Yeah, she did find that uh, really quite difficult at first. Um, you know, first of all, you know, she's was had just come out of a really brutal siege. She had seen so many of her friends die. She was suffering from, you know, what we would now call PTSD, unmistakably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did not have, you know, the same terms for it then. She was still recovering from physical wounds, you know, that were still causing her problems. All she wanted to do was get back to the front and rejoin the fight because, you know, at that point she was so filled with, you know, the urge to still not only defend her home, but avenge the people she loved who had died. And instead she's plucked out from that, this wounded woman, both mentally, physically, and emotionally, this wounded woman, and plucked and sent to to this very different world where she feels like a real fish out of water. And then she's told she has to, you know, do a really she's cast with something quite critical which is that you are being sent here to be a representative you're being sent to ask for aid from america to her country because at this point america was fighting against japan but they had not yet fully committed to sending men to the eastern front in uh in the in the european war and there were a lot of uh, forces and parties in the United States that thought, well, we already have Japan. There's no need for us to get mixed up in Europe too. Mm-hmm. And so her job there was to try to be someone who was speaking forcefully for, yes, we need aid. Please treat us like allies and please give us the help that we need. So it's a very important job, but it's one she must have felt, you know, really quite awkward doing it, at least to start because she's being asked suddenly, you know, someone whose whole job for the past, you know, 18 months has been stay out of sight. Uh, work in the shadows, you know, you know, just do your job and keep your head down. And all of a sudden she's being shoved into a spotlight with, you know, a microphone and, you know, hundreds of people who are, you know, looking to write her words down and who are also most aggravatingly asking questions like, do you really have the record that they say you do? Because we don't (laughs) think that this little librarian brunette over here can possibly be a sniper. No way, no way. And then they're asking her these annoying, asinine questions about, you know, not, you know, not about like, well, what is it like to be, you know, on the front lines? How are you hurting back there? What do you need? They're asking her, can you wear lipstick on the front line? And do you, you know, like your uniform isn't very flattering, you know, really, do you mind that? And they're asking her these horribly, you know, sexist and annoying questions. And she has to deal with that with grace, which she does not want to do, but she has to keep her mouth shut and keep smiling, honey. So all of this must have really been, you know, probably just as big of a shock as the initial shock of, you know, a civilian who is landing in, you know, the blood and the terror of the front line, just in a different way. Yeah. And one of the kind of moments that I love on this Goodwill tour is she comes into contact with a very famous woman who we've covered on our show, Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt. So 
how did that meeting go in real life and how did you kind of choose to portray it in the book? Well, we do know what their meeting was like. You know, they met because the Soviet delegation was welcomed to the White House. They were some of the first Soviet guests to stay overnight at the White mm-hmm. House, actually. And, you know, they had a welcome breakfast in the White House and, you know, Eleanor was there. And their first exchange, according to Mila's memoir, did not go terribly well. <laughs> and that was where Eleanor asked her over the table because they were all asking her questions, you know, can you see the faces of the people who you shoot, you know, through the sites? And, and because I wonder if Americans will be able to find that understandable or something along those lines. I can't remember the exact quote right now. Will they find that likable? And Mila's response was very measured, but quite terse, where she said, you live in a beautiful country here. It's lovely. And, but I don't think any, you have never had to watch your cities and towns be sacked and your sons and fathers and brothers be hauled away to the army or be shot and your sisters and mothers be, you know, be attacked by the enemy. You are safe here. I have done what I have needed to do to defend my country. And in my mind, any face of any German that I see through my sights may as well be the man who pulled the trigger to kill my friends and my loved ones. And there's a flat pause there. (laughs) And the thing is, I think that Eleanor seemed to realize it's like, all right, that didn't go quite as the way I wanted it to. So she really made an effort after that to be friendly. And it was first where there was a great scene also described in the memoir where she ended up driving Mila to uh, dinner at a Washington party because the embassy car was all full. So they, so Eleanor said, well, come drive me in my little convertible. I'll drive you over. And uh, apparently the woman who had the nickname of Lady Death and who was the terror of the Nazis is sitting there like clutching the arm of the, of the, the, the car and going like, oh my God, this woman drives like a maniac as Eleanor is like bulleting through Washington, D.C. and also like breaking down all the various factions that she's going to meet at the party that night and who she should talk to and who she might what kind of questions she might get and it, that ended up being the start of the thaw between them and because Eleanor really did have a gift and it's something I really admire her for she had a gift for friendship she had the rare ability you know as an extremely privileged woman I mean she was born to all of this wealth and this, this blue-blooded family she married into more wealth and more blue-blooded family and then she ends up you know the first lady of the United States and for all of that privilege she had a tremendous gift for being able to reach across the divide to people with much less than her or people with very different life experiences and make a genuine warm connection this woman had a gift for friendship and so you might think it's like the first lady of the united states and a soviet female sniper what what on earth are they going to be friends friendly about what are they going to talk about they found a way they became friends and there were such great things from the memoir you know like something where uh, you know Eleanor acted as Mila's guide on part of her goodwill tour you know through the midwest and you know like Mila remembers like falling asleep with her head on the first lady's shoulder waking up and as the first lady saying you know it's like we're in Chicago now darling you have a speech to make (laughs) and you know there's a great scene where she was invited to go to the Roosevelt estate on the Hudson in New York And she took a canoe out in the water in the morning and, you know, ended up falling in and coming in totally drenched. And Eleanor, like mothers everywhere, is like, come in here. You are going to catch your death of cold. (laughs) And 
ended up, you know, like pushing her to the bathroom and saying dry off and like gave her a pair of her own, like a pair of pink pajamas, but then had to hem them because, you know, Eleanor is about six feet tall and Mila's little thing. So you, and you know, the two of them ended up gossiping as, you know, Eleanor is like hemming this pair of pink pajamas and, you know, passing it across to her. And um, FDR eventually came in wondering, you know, like why his wife is late for dinner. And he literally walks in and like, there's, the Soviet female sniper and his wife, you know, sitting there talking about like fashion and movies and politics and books and like everything under the sun. And you could tell he just looked at that and was like, this is just one of those scenes that just defies description. Yeah. <laughs> so that really was one of the great joys of this book was being able to portray this extremely unlikely friendship because it really was a friendship we know that the two of them did really hit it off they continued to correspond by letter after uh, Mila left the United States and then and I knew right from the beginning this was going to be the scene in my epilogue Eleanor met Mila again 15 years later when she came to the USSR you know widowed by then in the 1950s and it was her turn to have a goodwill tour. And the two of them met up for the first time in 15 years and apparently like just absolutely fell on each other with hugs and, you know, caught up on everything. And I thought, what a wonderful, wonderful scene that I absolutely know was going to be the finishing touch for this book. That's really sweet. Do you, I mean, do you personally, like we talked a lot about Eleanor and Mila's relationship. How do you feel your relationship changed with Mila as you wrote the book and researched the book? How, how did things change between you and her? Well, it was one of those things where um, she wrote her memoir in later in life, which I've mentioned already. And that was really quite wonderful because um, it really gave me a front view into what her, what it was like to go into this, what she called the baptism of fire. And you know, she really is quite frank and honest in a lot of ways about what that experience is like, what it is like to be a sniper. Yet at the same time, you know, this document, since it was produced in the Soviet Union, the propaganda people did, you know, edit it a little bit. And so you see this sort of like fence of propaganda stuff that's sort of like put there. And you kind of have to peer through it a little bit to like find the real woman behind it. But she's there. You can you can hear her unmistakably. But at the same time, it's like, it also very much is not the Soviet way to like gush emotionally about a lot of things. So there are times when she's a little frustratingly quiet about things. And I would be like, what are you really feeling there? Because the fact is, it's not even just a Soviet thing or a cultural thing. No, even when you're writing your own memoir and your own story for posterity, nobody is always writing the whole truth. There's always things that we want to leave out. Like, you know, she doesn't say much about hardly anything about her first husband, the man who abandoned her. You know, he knocked her up when she was like 15. He was older. He really should not have been doing anything with a 15-year-old. He was. And then he abandoned her and their son. And she has maybe like three lines on him in the whole book. And the only thing that I think she really says of substance is when she says, fortunately, my son is nothing like his father. And I thought, there is an a world behind that word, fortunately. But the fact is, she doesn't say what that world is, because what woman wants to talk about her crappy ex in the story of her quite amazing life? You don't want to do that. She left him out. She left him to posterity. Yeah. So I felt the need, you know, the place where I could fill in some of these gaps where she doesn't necessarily 
uh, talk about some things because I know there's something there. I'm just not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. So my relationship to Milo is she felt very real to me. She really did feel like she was talking in my ear at times, but I'm also very cognizant too, that my version is just that it is my version. Um, I do hope that if she were somehow able to read this book, that she would think, okay, this isn't that far off. Okay. You did a good job, but I'm also aware that this is my interpretation of what her memoir is. And cause I have to interpret it somehow. And, um, so she's my version as well as, you know, being her own historical person as well. Yeah. Now, one of the descriptions of your book that I love is uh, Hidden Figures Meets American Sniper. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. It's nice. Know, why is Mila a kind of a forgotten figure in history? Like, why are people not writing about her more, I guess, specifically in America? I'm sure she's well known maybe in <laughs> Russia or Ukraine, but why have we never heard of her? Well, she was quite well known in her time because, you know, she did this big goodwill tour and she became really quite famous. But the thing is, I think she may have fallen into obscurity later because, you know, the Soviet Union was an ally during the war, but they so quickly became the enemy as soon as Hitler was defeated. They became the new enemy. They became the Cold War enemy. And I think there was a real thing of like, who's going to want to talk about a Soviet heroine? at that point, you know, unless she did something like defect to the United States, which she did not do. So, you know, I think there was a little bit of a thing to forget, you know, the, the Soviet uh, heroes, just because, you know, by that, you know, within a very short time, they became the enemy. So it's like, well, we don't want to talk about the enemy that much. And, you know, we have our own heroes that we'd rather talk about. But I do think her life was extraordinary. And even if she did live under a Soviet regime, which, you know, I'm never going to whitewash anything the Soviets did during the war or their very questionable record on all kinds of things or Stalin's atrocities. But even though she fought under that umbrella, I think her life was worth celebrating and her achievements as a woman and as a war hero, because it is so rare to see a woman war heroine. Uh, The Soviet Union was the only allied nation that put women in active combat in this way. And so a number of extraordinary women, you know, were able to step into the spotlight and they do deserve to be honored for having achieved something quite extraordinary. So was this book a long time coming for you or did you hear about her one day or wake up one day and you were like, that's it? Well, I actually uh, researched this book a little bit uh, back when I was doing the research for my two books ago book, The Huntress, which had a quite involved thread about the Night Witches, which was the Soviet Union's all-female regiment of night bomber pilots that flew against Settlers' Eastern Front. And so since I was reading about, again, about Soviet women war heroines, I was researching the pilots, but suddenly all these other Soviet women war heroines were coming into my feed and, you know, being mentioned in the same books. And chief among them was Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who is probably the most famous Soviet woman war heroine of World War II. And as soon as I read that story, I thought, oh, that is too good not to write. I've got to write that. But I'm just going to tuck her in my back pocket and I'm going to keep her for later and I'll see when I can get to that book. And so I ended up writing The Rose Code first after um, The Huntress. But after that, I thought, you know, I think it's time. I think it's time for this book. And it ended up, uh, so I ended up going going for it. And I'm very glad I did. Mm-hmm. Although I did not anticipate that 
uh, Ukraine was going to be so much on in filling the headlines when this book came out, you know, like literally when I first was putting this book out, I was so frustrated because so many of the people I was talking about it to were saying things like, where's Ukraine again? And where's Kiev again? And I was just like, oh goodness, it's not part of Russia. It was then, but it's not Russian. Please right. don't think that. Now people know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I also want to know, is there a meaning behind the title Diamond Eye? Is that um, like a sniper term? Like, what is that exactly? A little bit of a number of things. Um, first of all, it is the idea that this book ended up having a theme about pressure, specifically mm-hmm. women under pressure. And it's about how, you know, if you subject coal to enough pressure, it becomes a diamond. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a little bit of a metaphor for what Mila herself undergoes is that this ordinary woman is subjected to extraordinary pressure and she turns into a diamond. She turns absolute, she turns out brilliant and faceted and, you know, hard in some ways, but beautiful. And so that was part of it. And then you know, the fact that there's the clarity, the sharpness, the focus that seem to have a nice set of words that could apply to a sniper. And then also it allowed me to use one of the most interesting tidbits from her memoir, which is so inexplicable. And it's one of those places again, where I felt like I had to explain it because it was so weird. So I came up with my own explanation. But while Mila was on a Goodwill tour in the United States, an American millionaire uh, saw her at one of her speeches and apparently felt madly in love with her and started following her around on her Goodwill tour, like from city to city. And he eventually ended up proposing marriage to her. And her reaction to this is pretty much, who are you? And <laughs> what exactly made you look at a woman who had with a tally of 309 men and think excellent wife material? I, I mean, no. Absolutely not. No, I'm not going to marry you. So she's, and then she thought that was the end of it. And then it turned out the man, he took the refusal, but he gave her a going away present, which was submitted formally to the embassy. And it was a set of diamond jewelry. We're talking like a necklace, bracelets, earrings, brooch, ring, a whole set and I converted the value of it into like modern, uh, into like modern dollars. And I was thinking that is like a six figure set of jewelry that he gave her with a note in it that said, we will meet again. Now, according to her, they never did meet again. She left American shores like the next day and she never came back and she never saw this man again. So she was just like, that was just an extremely weird incident from my tour. <laughs> but I ended up thinking like, you can't have a note in a book like we will meet again wrapped around a ball of diamonds and not have something come of that so you'll have to read the book to find out but I have an explanation in there for who is the man who gives her the diamonds why does he give her the diamonds and what do the diamonds mean and do they in fact meet again spoiler in this book yes they do (laughs) so that was such that was such a weird incident I just thought I have to use that and you know the diamond uh, imagery was too good not to uh, utilize as well when it came time to look for a title well I love that story it's so great to end on a little bit of a mystery so people have something to look forward to when they go out and buy your book because this book sounds fantastic Meal is amazing um, so please tell us where can people find this book um, you can find it really anywhere uh, anywhere you 
are liking to look for your books. It is available on Audible and an audiobook if you prefer to listen rather than read. You can find it in ebook. Um, and I would always encourage, you know, go to your local indie if possible and uh, find from there. If you don't have a local indie, try bookshop.org, which will hook you up with the nearest uh, independent bookstore close to you and will help you ship, help you with shipping. But anywhere you can find it, Amazon, independent bookstores, uh, audible.com, wherever you can find books, you can find this. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to find your other work or your social medias? Well, you can always find me on uh, Twitter. I'm at, at Kate Quinn author, Facebook page, also at Kate Quinn author. I'm on Instagram, uh, Kate Quinn 5975. Um, I can generally be found in social media procrastinating for my word count. So please look <laughs> me up there. And you can also find my, uh, w- uh, my website, which is just katequinnauthor.com. And I've got information on events there, or if book clubs want to get in touch and see if I can call into their book club meeting, uh, any information like that, you can also find on my website. Perfect. Well, awesome. thank you for coming on. This was so much fun. <laughs> no, it was great fun for me too. Thank you so oh, much. Okay. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye